Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Barry Witham about his book, From Red Baiting to Blacklisting, The Labor Plays of Manny Freed. Barry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Andy, very much. So uh, hopefully your book will do something to remedy this, but Manny Freed is is not a uh, household name, even among theater aficionados. Could you kind of give us a sense of who he was and, and why you wanted to write a book about him? Sure. I became interested in Manny when I was doing some research on the uh, Federal Theater Project a couple of years ago in the WPA, and it had led my interest to a play called, uh, oh shoot, I don't have the name of it, The the Young Go First was the name of it, and it was a play that uh, really critiqued the CCC programs of the WPA. And I was intrigued by that because I wondered what the, you know, what the critique was. Well, it turns out in the play, the critique is that the Communist Party and other agencies felt that the whole CCC program was an attempt to create a kind of shadow army and drag the United States into wars. And I found that kind of intriguing. And so I, I, I looked a little bit into this play to see what its history was. In its background, and I discovered that there were three members of the cast who were still alive. One of them was Emmanuel Freed. I got in touch with Manny. We had several interviews, and I learned about the plays that he'd written uh, while he was blacklisted. So that's where I began to investigate him. That's such an interesting uh, premise for a play. Is this the sort of the early 30s, uh, third period stuff where they're yeah. calling Roosevelt a social fascist and that right. sort of thing? Absolutely. 1934. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense then. Um, and so, so Manny Fried is really kind of, uh, uh, comes out of this radical moment in the 1930s, uh, you know, works with Elia Kazan, Martha Graham, Elmer Rice, is sort of rubbing shoulders with the group theater. Right. Uh, How did that period, uh, both the politics and aesthetics of that period, shape uh, his his playwriting for the next several decades? Well, it was so interesting because, you know, he really bought into the kind of uh, propaganda of the young Communist Party. He really believed it, and he became absorbed by the notion of worker power and worker rights. And he left the theater and began to become an organizer in Upper New York. He went back to Buffalo, where he worked for a while in a little theater. Uh, But he became an organizer. And the whole notion of organizing and organized labor and the fact that he believed that the Communist Party was the only real agency that would recognize that there was a class problem in this country. And he followed that, really, for the rest of his life. Right. There's that kind of myth that America is a classless society. Right. 
Yeah, and that, that runs really deep in American culture. Yes, it does. And Manny tried at every turn to pop that bubble. <laughs> I like how you phrase that. Um, so you quote uh, Vivian Gornick in the book, and I actually happened to just uh, a few months ago read her book, The Romance of American Communism, which talks a lot about the emotional reasons that people were drawn to the Communist Party. Right. Uh, right. What did the party mean to uh, Manny Freed? Obviously, you know, provide a political home, a, a political analysis, but in terms of kind of emotion, his emotional life, what did it give him? I think that one of the things that really intrigued him was the whole issue of race and the whole issue of organizing black labor. Uh, he has a wonderful record when he went back to begin organizing uh, in New York of trying to get. Uh, trying to get black people involved in the labor movement because he believed that the communists were the only ones who really were interested in organizing the blacks. And even though they had uh, many, many weird attempts to go into the South, organizing sharecroppers and others, many believed in the dream of that. And I think that's what really provoked his interest. Hmm. And that definitely shows up in the plays, too. He's very sensitive to the ways that race is used to segment the working class and kind of pit people against each other. Right. And it was so fascinating for me to go back and look at uh, the way he describes characters in those plays, because there was not a movement at that time to really incorporate blacks and other minorities into the, you know, the great white way on the Broadway stage. And Manny was talking early on about black actors. And I found that so intriguing. There's also, in a lot of the plays, there's uh, discussions of anti-Semitism. And, and Freed was Jewish. Yeah. Do you think his experience of anti-Semitism within the labor movement in some ways maybe made him more sensitive to looking at the plights of blacks and other uh, oppressed minorities? Yeah, I do. And also women. Uh, the issue with women to me, Andrew, is particularly interesting because uh, in one of the early versions of this manuscript, uh, I had submitted it to a, to a publisher, and one of the critiques of the book was that uh, the plays are really anti-women in many ways. And that's strange because... Freed wasn't. Freed really was uh, interested in enrolling women in the unions. Uh, and so I went back and I made some adjustments in the text to try to say, well, he was a man of his generation, blah, 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 blah. But I wasn't very happy with that. I think that Manny's record in minorities and women in the union is uh, speaks for itself and is a good one. Yeah, one thing that, I mean, he's he's writing in, in the realist vein. I mean, these are not, you know, Brechtian agitprop right. pieces. They're, Absolutely. They're really, you know, kind of grittily realistic. And you, you get that sense in a lot of the, there's a character in uh, in one of the plays who is a, a kind of a, a good union guy. And one of the kind of services he provides for the fellow workers is holding these annual stag parties where right. they invite a, a stripper to come in and, and right. perform for the guys. Which, you know, is not the kind of thing you'd see in a Clifford O'Dead's play, but it's probably the kind of thing you'd actually see in a union in the 1940s. That's right. That's right. So he's not sugarcoating the reality that, uh, you know, the, within the working class, there's plenty of misogyny and, and, you know, racism and religious bigotry. Oh, and, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, so you mentioned he's uh, in the 30s trying to make it as an actor in New York then becomes a director up in Buffalo and then uh, gets a job in a factory, becomes involved with union organizing. Right. At this point, did he think he was giving up the theater or did he always plan to kind of be working as a, as a union activist and also to continue his creative writing? I think that at this point, he really was committed to the unions. I think he gave up the theater. Uh, largely because I don't think he was as successful as he wanted to be in New York. And I think he also got married and had other obligations. And he committed himself almost full-time to being an organizer. His dreams about the theater, I don't know performance-wise. You know, Manny acted many, many roles later in life with an adult company in Buffalo, was very well respected as an actor. But I think at some point he really did believe that he had found his niche as a union organizer. Yeah, you, you mentioned his uh, kind of late-in-life uh, involvement in the theater in Buffalo, and he has kind of an amazingly long career. I mean, he's starting in the 30s and dies in, what, 2011 or something? Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's performing with this uh, theater company, the Subversive Theater Collective, right? Like almost up until the end. Yes, yes. I actually, I don't know if I mentioned this in our emails uh, setting up the interview, but I actually first found out about Manny Fried. I'm a playwright and I've written a couple of plays that deal with the labor movement. And wow. I did a reading of uh, one of the plays and, you know, some we did a little talk back afterwards and somebody said, you know, I'm from Buffalo and we, <laughs> we used to have this playwright up there named Manny Fried. <laughs> you know, I think he'd be happy to see that there were, uh, you know, writers trying to continue that tradition. Oh, wow. You know, one of the frustrating <laughs> things, one of the really frustrating things for me this summer is the book came out in May, but mm-hmm. uh, everything at the at the office, you know, in Southern Illinois, is uh, they're all working at home. And it's yeah. very difficult to get, you know, an advertising campaign going for this. But I did write to several people trying to find a voice in Buffalo uh, and I wrote to a, a couple of reporters at the Buffalo Daily News. Uh, I managed to find some names, and uh, I've had absolutely no interest. I got this one reporter who eventually said, you know, the newspaper does not have uh, uh, an arts, co- uh, does not have a book review column. The arts person isn't really interested in the theater. And so there's this wonderful, just wonderful area that I could promote this book in Buffalo, but I can't find anybody to talk about it or write about it in Buffalo. So the media blackout in Buffalo continues. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's something you talk about in the book is that, you know, I mean, we, we think of the Red Scare as, you know, we think of the, the people who were blacklisted in Hollywood and, you know, lost their career and the dramatic right. testimony before HUAC. But, you know, Manny Fried was, was not a, was not a Laia Kazan. He was not, he was not kind of, uh, a household name even in his time, but right. he was just hounded for decades by yes, the FBI was. and and by the Catholic Church and by the the local newspapers in Buffalo. I mean the the depth of the harass. He had what like a three thousand page FBI file. <laughs> right, like, right. It's just incredible the 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 ferocity with which the power structures kind of crack down on this guy. Like even going so far as to discouraged people from eating at his wife's family's restaurant because they said every dollar you spend on a hamburger here is funding the communists. It's just incredible. 
It was. It was amazing in terms of that period and how they destroyed people. And it's one of the passions that Manny has uh, was to try to not let that be forgotten, to try to keep that on the, you know, above the fold and in the headlines. And he really did. And that really, um, that comes through in a lot of the plays too, the ways that, you know, these, these issues of union organization are, are not just economic issues, but have really uh, dramatic personal stakes. You know, I'm thinking of like the, the play, The Dodo Bird, which just kind of depicts how this guy who had a sort of skilled job working with one of the, the complicated machines uh, just, you know, loses that and has to kind of cobble together a living and it just right. destroys him. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the way that deindustrialization combined with, uh, with the, the, the anti-communism really chewed up lives is, is kind of the theme of these plays. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and what is so fascinating for me, as I say in the book, I try to look backward and forward. Uh, what is so fascinating to me is how, how many of these issues still resonate so passionately for us. I, looking at yesterday's headline of the Seattle Times here, which says that basically it looks like Boeing is going to move their entire 787 plant out of Seattle and to uh, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, there was a huge union battle there about uh, working on the 787. I listened to our president and others constantly red-baiting anyone that they don't like as if, you know, Americans still buy into this idea that if you call someone a communist, you know, that will destroy them. And it's discouraging. Even Joe Biden's not immune from red baiting, which is just incredible <laughs> to know. me. I know. <laughs> About the most right wing, uh, you know, elected official in the Democratic Party. And Trump's still saying he's a Trojan horse for socialism. Right, like, right. If, if only that were true. Right, you know? I know, I know, Andy. Um, so uh, you also talk about Manny Fried's involvement in the the UE uh, union struggles of the late 40s. The, this was one of the largest and most radical unions, and it just got kind of carved up by inter-union uh, kind of fratricidal raiding. Uh, right. Can you talk a little bit, bit about his involvement with that, and did that change his, his maybe rosy view of uh, what it meant to be a union man? You know, it's a fascinating question because when you go back and you look at the history of that period and the people who really wanted to stay with the communist point of view, uh, no matter what, uh, you can understand why the union got split because the whole notion of whether we should support Truman or not support Truman and give, you know, give the election back to the Republicans was something that the communists really got criticized for in this country. They really wanted to hang on and and go with their socialist man. They opposed uh, the rebuilding of Europe. Um, and it was, a, it was a very bad time. Manny, I think, was an idealist. He held out. He really believed uh, in the ideas of communism. Uh, but as I point out later on in that little short story that he wrote about being in Korea, uh, I think that he knew, in spite of his denials, I think he knew the hatred in the face of Stalin. And I think mm-hmm. that that was a realization that he came to. And in that story, he even has the narrator say, 
you know, if I were in Soviet Russia, maybe I would be in the gulags too, right? Right, exactly. Which is kind of an incredible admission. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, I mean, he never really had, other than that that late short story, he never really had a kind of dramatic moment of denouncing the party. Do you think that was partially because he always thought of himself more as a union organizer than a party organizer? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, In some of the testimony that I quote, where he gets into a terrific arguments uh, with Communist Party uh, representatives, and he keeps insisting, I'm a labor organizer first, not a party organizer. And that distinction meant a lot to men. The difference between organizing for the party and organizing for the union. Manny was a union person, first and foremost. And uh, the communists, you know, hated when he got out of line. So he was not above kind of deviating from the from the party line. No, no. But he never renounced the party. That's very true. Yeah. And I, I think that, no. There are a couple of people who kind of who uh, you know pro- prominent uh, communists who never really like. I think Pete Seeger left the party in like 1991 or something. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> like maybe a little later than would be appropriate, but you know. Right. And, um. So, yeah, so this is in the context of the the CIO's decision to purge communists from leadership. And in one of the plays, he discusses uh, the role of the Catholic Church in encouraging this red baiting within the labor movement and kind of purging uh, leftists and and communists from leadership roles. Could you kind of describe uh, those those events in, in his life and kind of how they show up in the plays? Yeah, Manny was very intrigued by the fact that the Catholic Church really had such power in the working class. And he felt that once the Catholic trade unions had really decided to red bait people and go on the attack against communism, he felt that that was going to be a very, very difficult period for organized labor. I was intrigued by his relationship with some of the hierarchy in the Catholic Church in Buffalo because they really did dislike him and they really felt that uh, the unions were going to be sold out, you know, to the communists. And on top of that, he had this personal relationship with his wife uh, who had this business and, you know, the, the, the Catholic leaders tried to denounce her, and it became very, very complicated. But I think that Manny's bottom line was that there was a trilogy that was formed in this country between the church and the state and the business organizations to demonize labor at all costs. He also recognized that labor was not pure. He recognized the uh, Utility of trying to support labor when they were using union dues to buy casinos. <laughs> but he also felt that you, you should not demonize organized labor because it's the last bulwark we have against a kind of vulture capitalism. Right. And that's, that's certainly been borne out in the last, uh, say, 40 years. Yes, it has. As the union movement has, uh, has declined and is, and there's just been exploding inequality. Absolutely. And the way that the teachers' unions are red-baited uh, right. is, re- is really impossible to understand. 
Uh, you write about Freed's testimony before the House Un-American Activities Committee, which he testified in front of, in front of them twice in 54 right. and 64. Right. I didn't realize that the that Tewak was around in 64. I mean, that's that's much later than I feel like we normally think of that as, as yeah. being. They were still going strong and uh, still finding ways to investigate uh, party members. The 64 event where he testified, and his testimony there is wonderful because it's absolutely explosive. Uh, but that was also caught up with some friends of his, who were some professors who were being investigated at uh, uh, Buffalo State University. And the whole idea that HUAC had kind of uh, moved along from, you know, Hollywood stars to uh, political stars to teachers and college professors was something that Manny was very aware of and aware of how HUAC could continue to sow their poison. And I think that's why he was so outraged in 64. And he didn't take the fifth, right? No, he didn't. So what was his, What did he say when he was called in front of HUAC? What, did, what was his defense? <clears throat> the first time he just said, you know, I'm not going to take the fifth. I'm, you have no business. You have no legality. You have no, you have no legal basis to ask me these questions. And he knew that by taking that stand, because some people had, by taking that stand, he could be in contempt of Congress. And for some reason, and he doesn't know why, and I don't know why, either he was too loquacious, uh, or he was too stubborn, but they chose not to do what they had done to Arthur Miller and other people who had also taken that stance. It's so fascinating to me the different uh, ways that different theater artists dealt with uh, the House on American Activities Committee. It, it feels like for each one, it kind of it became a, a, a type of a performance. So, you know, Manny Fried has this very impassioned, you know, uh, uh, very earnest defense. And, you know, someone like Brecht just keeps saying, oh, you know, you're really right. misrepresenting me because that's, right. a, that's a terrible translation. Yeah. If you'd only had the right translation, you would see that I didn't say anything like that. You know? Right, right. I have all... Uh, no, I've always loved Lillian Hellman in spite of the controversy. I've always loved Lillian Hellman's response when people would say, well, you should have done this or you should have done that or people should have done that. Lillian Hellman used to say, hey, you didn't get the subpoena. Mm. Don't tell me what you would have done. You didn't get the subpoena. Yeah. Um. So, so uh, moving from maybe one meaning of the term political theater to another, uh, what was Freed's relationship to kind of mainstream theater of the day, and and when did he start to get his plays produced? Uh, his play, he, he's a, I forget his agent's name. Uh, she was a, a prominent agent. She sent his plays out uh, to several Broadway producers. Uh, Frequently, they would just come back as not commercial. And mm. not commercial meant either too political or too big a cast or whatever. Uh, he began to have some success with his plays uh, in the 60s, began to get some productions. The one that I talk about in California was a, a very successful production. The Dodo Bird get, did get some regard off Broadway. Uh, but by and large, I think the combination of the 
FBI constantly haunting him and the notion that frequently his plays were not commercial in a, in a, in a mainstream uh, way uh, really prevented him from, from uh, having them seen. And that was one of the things that I was interested in in writing this book is that there's no way you're going to see a lot of these plays. I mean, we're in an era now of, you know, one person shows and uh, six casts no matter what. Uh, but I thought that they should be preserved because I think they are a kind of living record uh, and a cultural record uh, of a whole part of our country that's very important. And he did even, he had some later in his life productions as well. I mean, I forget which play, but one of them was produced at Subversive Theater in the mid-2000s, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I so, tried to get in touch with those folks at Subversive Theater, and I haven't been able to. Uh, I think that they're on, you know, some kind of shutdown like we all are in many sense. Yeah. And so, so I've, I've tried to get in touch with them, but I haven't. Yeah, definitely. Kind of the, the whole theater world is, is on a, a pause right now, and it's very right. uncertain when, when things are going to be able to reopen. Uh, so something – so uh, Freed is not unique among American playwrights in that he had sympathy with unionized uh, labor, but he is somewhat unique in that he actually had, you know, decades of experience uh, in the labor movement. So what do you see separating his plays from, you know, a play like, I don't know, a, a view from the bridge, perhaps that depicts working class characters, but from the perspective of somebody who either wasn't ever in the working class or had long since left the working class. Yeah, that's hard because, uh, <clears throat> you know, he he really uh, he really believed that his plays, or he really wanted to try to capture in his plays uh, the ebb and flow, the real time, the real character, the real uh, lifestyle of people in the working class. Uh, but he was not the dramatist that uh, Miller was, or or Dets was, or a variety of other people who wrote about the working class. He felt he could write about the working class from inside out, and mm -hmm. he did. But frequently, the issues that get propelled out of his plays are not as powerful as something like A View from the Bridge, for example. It, it, the, the plays often kind of center around really the minutia of uh, organizing within a union. I mean, absolutely. absolutely. You almost, wanna, you almost wanna reach for a glossary or something to understand <laughs> even just kind of what's going on on a plot level. Oh, absolutely. And the whole notion that he goes into such detail about how these meetings were held and how they, they, they were organized and the detail about, you know, how they established the pyramid in the committee room or in the meeting room in order to silence the opposition. You know, a lot of that is, is really, is really powerful information. Uh, but it does tend, as you say, to devolve into minutia in a number mm -hmm. of places. Right. And you know, it's, it's not like it's without stakes. I mean, when they're, when they're using kind of obscure points of Robert's rules to, 
kind of silence one another. There's there's real kind of heft behind that, but it could just get a, a little lost in. Wait, why is this person speaking out of turn right now? Why is right. this person allowed to introduce this motion at this time? You know, right? It's uh, it you definitely get the get the sense that he understands what those meetings were like. But, yes, uh, and and I, without being able to see them on the page, it can become very confusing. Yeah. So. I, I saw on a, a television show a, a, a depiction of a meeting of a left-wing political group where the meeting was just them standing up and yelling slogans. Yes. like it, And it's like, oh, you, you've never been in that room. <laughs> sort of the, and you don't get that sense of these plays at all. You, no. you feel like, oh, you've, you know this stuff uh, to your bones. Right, right. Although it's very clear the way the fascists and the communists get delineated in Manny's world. Yes. Yeah, and he, and you know, in uh, Elegy for Stanley Gorski, he has the, the narrator character uh, kind of poking fun at the use of these very reductive slogans. But you also get the sense, uh, he, you, he does sort of believe that, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church is, is behaving like fascists. Right, in, right. In these disputes. Yeah, and that was one of the things that was so intriguing to me, Manny's depiction of how the labor priests actually functioned. You know, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but but think of Carl Malden <laughs> and on the waterfront where he is portrayed yeah. in such heroic terms and uh, saintly. Yeah. Yeah. Saintly terms. And for Manny, that was not the, uh, the labor priests who were a formidable force at one point in the church. Yeah. There's uh, a character in one of the, I think it's in analogy for Stanley Gorski says the labor movement is too important to be in the hands right. of anybody but the Catholic church. Right. Right. It's too important to be in anyone else's hands but ours. Yeah. yeah. So certainly, um, you know, it's a, a less uh, sunny view of kind of the, the labor priest uh, phenomenon. Yeah. Um, so one other thing that I think sets his plays apart from the plays of Clifford Odets or, or you know, the, the Federal Theater Project is that the majority of them were not written at the kind of peak of struggle in the 30s and 40s. They're really kind of uh, documents of the long, slow decline of the labor movement from yeah. the 60s to the 80s. How do you feel yes. that that sets them apart, you know, tonally, artistically from those earlier uh, labor plays? Yeah, it's an interesting question. He's, he's always kind of looking back in his plays. And uh, one of the things that intrigued me uh, especially visiting the uh, the sites there in Buffalo. One of the things that intrigued me was that uh, Manny uh, really felt that what was happening in the labor movement uh, had its roots, you know, back in the 30s and had its roots in the Taft-Hartley organization and other things. But he really felt that as he looked back, he could see how things kept developing, and he could see how he could see how the unions continued to be demonized. And so I think that the plays are very reflective in a way, because he has a longer view than the folks who were actually writing at the moment. And I think that he, you know, when he talks about in the Dodo Bird and others about the deindustrialization of America. He's talking from the point where he already sees it. I was just haunted by the, 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 there's a place in there, I forget who I was quoting, uh, 
that he talks about, you know, people who criticize this, have they ever lived in Chicago at night? Have they ever heard the gunfire? You know, do they know what's going on in the inner cities? And I think Manny's whole interest in the labor movement was the way that he could see it in a long arc. And he felt that one of the tremendous moments was, you know, when Reagan destroyed the, uh, the airline union. Right. And as a Marxist, you know, you really see the, the vision that he has of what happens to organized labor, what happens to the working class is sort of the canary in the coal mine for what's going to happen to the, to the whole country. That's yeah. the base that uh, determines the superstructure of, right. of culture and society as a whole. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that play Dodo Bird especially is just so brutal. I mean, could, could you talk about that play? That play is very different than the other two, than Drop yes, Hammer and Elegy for Stanley Gorski. It's, it's got only four characters, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's the, a bartender, this guy named the Dodo Bird, who's this sort of pathetic uh, alcoholic, um, though, you know, he becomes more sympathetic as the play goes on. And then there's kind of a, almost like a, an angel and a devil who right. are kind of uh, trying to see is he is he going to fall back into drink or is he going to stay sober to, to right. meet his uh, estranged daughter? Could you talk a bit about that play? I mean, was this? It seems like a bizarre question with such a, a dark play, but was this kind of his bid for making something a little bit more acceptable to the demands of the commercial theater? I think it may have been. Yeah, the the intriguing thing about the dodo bird is that. Again, the labor issues are there, and they're central. And while we tend to get caught up in the dodo bird's alcoholism and the incredible uh, loss of his daughter and his wife, I mean, it's just a horrible story. But what's playing underneath in the, you know, those other two guys is, is resentment over things that have happened in the union. And I've forgotten now exactly what the... Uh, what what the point is, but but what's driving Bull is not just his dislike for the dodo. What's driving him also is the way that he feels he wasn't appreciated or he wasn't applauded for some some things that he did in the union, whereas the other guy says these things were outrageous. And so between them, it's not only about the dodo bird; it's about union politics, which always comes back in Freed's work. Um, so I, I have a question about the, his relationship, the relationship of the plays to the kind of extraordinary repression that he faced. Did, did the FBI, do you think the fact that he was writing these plays, uh, was part of the reason the FBI was so interested in him? Or do you think they were really just interested in him as, uh, as a kind of radical labor organizer? Oh, I think that, yeah, I think they were interested in him early on because he was a member of the communist party. They knew that early on. Uh, and I think that that was the, you know, that was the place where they were. That's the place where Hoover was. If you remember the Communist Party, then you deserved uh, anything they could do to you. Uh, I think that uh, Manny's plays and his work uh, and all of that, you know, maybe was not the chief concern that they were doing. The, the party just wanted to keep him unemployed. They wanted to keep him followed. They wanted to intimidate him and his neighbors and his family. And it's part of just a, a, a very sad chapter 
uh, in this country in terms of the way Hoover was able to do that. But I think that Manny's plays probably suffered from the fact that every time a producer would be interested, a producer would be visited, uh, and every time it looked like something nice might happen, it didn't. I think a lot of those incidents maybe were his own paranoia. I don't, you know, I don't resist that for a moment. Uh, when you have been uh, followed by the FBI most of your adult life, uh, it's hard not to be paranoid about it. Uh, it. It reminds me of that line from the Nirvana song, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk about that because I, I, when I was reading the book, I was kind of going back and forth and kind of being like, you know, he's blaming his persecution on his lack of success as a playwright. And, you know, the, the plays are certainly extraordinary in, in a lot of ways. But I could understand why if you were a producer, you would say, there's no way we're producing this play right. that has 30 characters right. arguing about, you know, union dues. Right. So, I mean, you know, that, that question of is he is he paranoid and kind of blaming it? But then when he does finally get hold of his FBI file, it's thousands of pages. Yes, and it just it reveals that they have been tailing him. I mean, this must have been, you know, some agent's, you know, life's work, essentially, to, to tail this poor guy and to, to harass his friends and family for 40 years. Yes, well, there so, were two agents that he identified later on in the lawsuit, and uh, both of them uh, eventually died before that lawsuit got settled. Uh, but he had pretty clear evidence that these two guys had just hounded him and his neighbors. Right. You know, and then w when I talked to the daughters, <clears throat> excuse me, when I talked to Lori and Mindy and their you know, their recollections of what it was like to live in this time are just so sad. You know, when they begin to realize that the carpool that was going to take her to the temple. She's no longer welcome. Uh, when kids say stuff to her, you know, on the school ground about commies, what was it like for these two little girls, you know, to suddenly see their father on the front pages of the paper demonized? Uh, and that's where I really found this part of this story so interesting. Both those girls are still alive. Uh, Mindy has written a lovely uh, memoir of her dad. Let's see if I have that. It's called Caring for Red by Mindy Freed, a daughter's memoir. And mm. in it, it, it gives a lot of the feeling of uh, growing up with this struggle. Yeah, do they, do they express kind of regret that her father was involved in, in left-wing politics or... Or, I mean, there's this, there's a great uh, evocation in Gornick's book about, you know, the very intense relationship, emotional relationships between uh, daughters and their uh, and their communist uh, fathers. I mean, right. did was he did he kind of remain a hero for these for his daughters? I think so. Yeah, he certainly is today for them both. Uh, I think that, well, Mindy, you know, who's written this uh, this lovely Caring for Red memoir. Uh, Mindy became very politically active herself, and uh, Lori was intensely devoted to her dad. You know, they supported him at these hearings. They really believed that he was right. The only thing that they ever said to me 
uh, in one of the phone interviews was that they said, you know, Barry, I'm, I'm sure there was a time when we thought, you know, maybe Dad's plays aren't that good. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it isn't the FBI. Uh, right. And uh, But no, they were absolutely devoted to their dad and still are. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, it's it's really incredible that in their pursuit of communists, of American citizens who are, who are members of the Communist Party or fellow travelers, the FBI really ended up reproducing the tactics of the Stalinist secret police. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, and, you know, there are some wonderful books out there about it, but they don't get much press. They don't get read very much. And uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, I, I forgot, I'm trying to see it here. I've forgotten one of the books that really impressed me in terms of the way that uh, this fellow described how the party went after people. And uh, You mean how the, how, the, how the Bureau, the FBI I'm went sorry, after people? I'm sorry, yeah. yes, how the Bureau went after people. And, uh, you know, it was no holes barred. It was, you know, when... when so when Telpro came in, you know, we're going to just, we're going to get rid of them. We, mm-hmm. You know, we badmouthed them. Now we're going to just get rid of them. We're going to go to the neighbors. Manny's picture was in the paper. Uh, red baited constantly. It seems like with, uh, with Trump, everybody is so eager to find kind of non-American uh, authoritarians to compare him to. But there's certainly plenty of authoritarianism in our own history that we could see that. I mean, he's, his mentor was uh, Roy Cohn, who's exactly. one of the prominent uh, figures in, in McCarthyism. Exactly. exactly. So it, it definitely seems like there's a direct line between what was going on at this period and, uh, and some of the authoritarianism we see today. Oh, absolutely. The whole notion of Roy Cohn being brought back somehow in a, in a gentler, softer light by an administration is just appalling. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that Roy Cohn is relevant to something other than a character in Angels in America is <laughs> I depressing. Know. Yes, it is. Um, speaking of things that are a little less depressing, you talk a little bit about Lynn Nottage's play Sweat, which yes. was a, a big hit on Broadway, won the Pulitzer Prize, and deals with, you know, it's, it's a very Manny Freed-like situation. I don't know if there's a specific influence there or if it's just sort of inevitable given the subject matter, but right. that's a play that takes place primarily in a bar near a factory during deindustrialization and deals with the way that those tensions between of, of race and gender get tied up with the class conflict. Uh, do you feel like the success of this play indicates that perhaps the theater is, is becoming a little bit more open to working class concerns? No, I think there are voices from time to time mm-hmm. uh, that that speak out and get noticed for whatever reason. I mean, I think that uh, I think that Sweat is an intriguing play. I think that uh, unlike Manny, you know, Manny's plays, you don't see, uh, uh, or you see in Sweat the, the the devastation more in terms of the drug problems mm-hmm. or the violence. But I think that the uh, the parameters of it are very, very like what Manny was talking about. And the whole idea yeah. that organized labor is still demonized. 
you do, it's having to get much less of the kind of inner politics of the union in, in sweat. Yeah. There, oh, absolutely. there aren't those operatic, uh, you know, union hall scenes as much. Right. Right. And sweat, you know, is in, in many senses, the well-made play. You want to find out what happened, what mm-hmm. was the violence, what happened to the bartender. I forgot. Now, when I saw it in New York, there was, I, w- I was anticipating the big, uh, big uh, jolt at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't really feel the big jolt as much as I as I wanted to when I was trying to figure mm-hmm. out uh, what the what the big jolt was. But uh, it's a fascinating see, play. I like it yeah, a lot. Yeah, I think it's a really good play. I I went to see it with a, a friend of mine, and he left the theater, and he was just sort of looked dazed. And I was like, "What's what's up, man?" And he just goes, "The system, the system." <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I thought that was a pretty good uh, summary. And then finally, um, so Manny Fried didn't live to see the the two uh, Sanders campaigns, ultimately unsuccessful. Wow, but, yeah. you know, in the years since he's died, it's only, it hasn't even been 10 years, but socialism is really back on the map uh, as, as a serious kind of current in American politics. Right. Do you have any sense of kind of what he would what he would think about about this? Wow, that's a good question, Andy. I'm not, you know, Manny was always so good at looking beneath the headlines and beyond the headlines and uh, to the actual workings of what was going on. Uh, and, and and he didn't get tempted by a lot of the, the niceties. Uh, the whole current debate about socialism uh, he would, of course, been unhappy with the way it's being demonized. But I don't know how he'd respond to, you know, the kind of the uplift, the kind of, look, this is good socialism. We have Social Security. We have this. We have that. Mm-hmm. Look at Sweden. I mean, the, the multiple ways that socialism has not been demonized, I think Manning would admire, but I think also he would be very suspicious of the way that we're red baiting once again, no matter what. Yeah, maybe he would be more excited about the recent strike waves than about any kind of electoral. Uh, oh, value. right. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show to talk about this book. I really enjoyed getting to know this uh, this playwright, Manny Fried, and and, uh, and I hope your book will introduce a wider readership to his plays, because they're certainly uh, a, a, a strange beast, but... Um, I think a really vital voice in the American theater. Wow. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate your interest very much.